Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Langdon Cook joins us today. Langdon is a forager. He seeks wild foods hidden in the riotous cacophony that is nature. He is also a writer, instructor, and lecturer, sharing not only practical tips, but the lyrical facets of this chosen lifestyle. His books include The Mushroom Hunters, On the Trail of an Underground America, Fat of the Land, Adventures of a 21st Century Forager, and the forthcoming Upstream, Search for Wild Salmon from River to Table, coming out in May of 2017. He has been described as a walking field guide, a gifted storyteller, and the Henry David Thoreau of his generation. Langdon, thank you for being here today. Thanks. It's good to be here. That's a, that's a lot to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought I'd set you up <laughs> and see where we go from there. All right. So what pathway in your life led you to become who you are today? Did you know very early on that a life of foraging and sharing your love for foraging was in the cards for you? Let me just state, first off, that I never intended to become the forager of Seattle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is sort of new to me. Well, not that new, but that was not the intention. I've always been drawn to the natural world uh, since I was a kid. For the first seven years of my life, I was an only child until my sister came along. And so I had to kind of create my own fun for myself. Uh, I actually grew up on the East Coast, just outside New York City in the suburbs. It was an area, though, that was a little more rural than your typical suburbia. And we had a few acres, mostly woods. I used to just ramble around and do a lot of trespassing on other people's property and uh, spend time in the woods turning over rocks and collecting bugs for terrariums and uh, just exploring in general. So I, I developed this affinity for nature at a very young age. My parents would give me, you know, Audubon books and things like that. And I learned how to identify birds That was really my first passion, I guess, uh, when it comes to natural history. So I'd be out there with my binoculars looking at birds and learning their calls, turning over rocks. And that was really how it started for me, just being kind of a nature boy. And I think I'd like to explore that foraging impulse that overtakes people and the culture that forms around it, around that impulse. I mean, some of these folks are are commercial foragers, right? So their impulse is primarily, you know, to get... That's financial. Yeah, financial gain out of it. And you've noted that, that whole culture in your books, but others do it for personal pleasure. And what is the nature of that impulse? Is it the need to, to just discover something that's hidden or is it the need to find different tastes? What what for you and what is it for people that you've experienced? That? What What's the nature of that impulse? I discovered forging after moving to the West Coast. I came up to Seattle in 91 to go to graduate school at University of Washington. And I immediately fell in with a crew of other would-be foragers, mostly graduate students. No one really had much money. And so we would we would get together and, and go foraging and find these incredible foods and, and throw these parties for the department. And, you know, of course, all the other graduate students, they were broke and hungry. And they loved coming over and being able to just eat a mess of Dungeness crabs or wonderful morel mushrooms or all these other delicacies that command a fairly hefty price in the market. But right off the bat, I was intrigued by this foraging lifestyle, A, because I was just into nature from my youth, but B, there was this sort of ativistic impulse, this these ancestral buttons, the, the act of foraging really sort of pushed, at least within me. And I I think we all have these impulses. It's just a matter of sort of how many layers of, you know, civilization have been sort of papered over them, you Mm -hmm. know, and accessing these sort of aspects of our humanity. It's just something that I was drawn to right away. The act of going out and well, we would dive for Dungeness crabs in Puget Sound as opposed to just throwing a, you know, a crab pot, you know, overboard. We would actually put on wetsuits and go diving for them. And we'd go into the woods and hunt mushrooms. And it's an incredible feeling. It's the treasure hunt, actually. And who doesn't love a treasure hunt? It's the excitement of spotting a morel mushroom in the woods or that, you know, mountain trout that rises in an alpine lake to take your fly. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, it's, there's something that is just so primal about it. And it just lights up all these sort of pinball bulbs that, you know, I I didn't even know I had 
And I was just immediately into it. You know, I was always into hiking and that sort of stuff. But all of a sudden, there were these detours to take while I was out in the woods or on the coastline. And these detours would be in search of wild foods. And they ended up becoming sort of the end in themselves, as opposed to, you know, going on a hike to get to the top of a peak or something like that. There would be going on a hike so that maybe we would stumble on some wild foods of some sort or another. Mm -hmm. It's such a stark contrast that you're putting in my mind about people who search for food the way you've described it. And then when I think about my daily existence going into a grocery store with fluorescent lights flickering every so slightly, music that I thought was underground when I was young now showing up in supermarkets and, and the small pleasure of finding, foraging something, some deal in a you know, candy-colored package in the middle of an aisle, aisle 26, as opposed to what you've described. So we can take those impulses of finding in a grocery store and take people out there. And it's amazing the the variety that they will find if they, if they just do that little effort. That's right. I mean, it's, you know, the treasure hunt comes in all sorts of guises, right? For me, it's just a, a win-win because it gets me out into nature. These species that we're looking for, so charismatic in their own right. Wild greens, mushrooms, shellfish, all the varieties of finfish that I go after, whether it's you know, spearfishing or fly fishing or some other method. I mean, all these different species, salmon, and, you know, they're all very charismatic. I guess, you know, the capture is this moment where you can never really know them, but you just just get a little closer to them that way. Hmm. And of course, I mean, it's food, ultimately, right? And I mean, that is the most basic instinct that we have. We're hungry. We need to feed ourselves. It reminds me of the story you told in, in Fat of the Land around the lingcod and how you're not you're more of a landlubber rather yeah. than a water lover, but you put on the, the suit and you had the spear and you had to dive and, and basically try to get that one lingcod that you half speared but didn't quite get it and escaped and then you had to go back down and get it. It's a specific character, this lingcod. It becomes a character in your description. Well, the lingcod is a character and the guy who I go diving with is a character as well. And he's a character I write about in a few different chapters in the book, a poet and philosopher who was one of the first uh, guys that I got to know in the Seattle uh, writing program. And he'd been a free diver from way back, and he really taught me the ins and outs of that. And, and like you mentioned <laughs> from, from that chapter, I, I am sort of a landlubber. I'm not that comfortable in the water. I, I didn't grow up with that sort of tradition. Uh, we weren't boaters. We didn't spend a lot of time on the shore. And I certainly had never been free diving before. Uh, and so putting on this uncomfortable wetsuit, I think it was about four millimeters thick, which is fairly thick because, you know, Puget Sound is cold. So you've got to wear a weight belt as well, about 35 pounds of, of weight, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, wrapped around you and to, just, just to get down because you're floating like a cork. Mm. And, uh, and then you carry this pole spear which is, it's sort of a long dowel fiberglass with a stretch of surgical tubing looped around one end and you wrap that around your wrist and that's how you cock it. So it's, you know, not mechanical at all. I mean, it's really just this very simple tool and then it has a three-pointed spear point at the other end. And uh, taking a breath, diving down, trying to locate the prey, you know, 20 feet under Puget Sound, you're going to feel that the pressure and just trying to hold your breath that long to catch up with the prey and then get a good shot off. I mean, the whole thing is incredibly primal and it's underwater hunting, really. And I was just immediately drawn to it, even though I was totally uncomfortable. And I was thinking about orcas and great white sharks. <laughs> yeah. you know? mm -hmm. Of course, there. well, occasionally maybe one shows up in the sound, but you really don't have to worry about sharks in Puget Sound. But I was thinking about them anyway because, you know, there's always something around the corner, right? Mm -hmm. And it's sort of dark and murky and the jellyfish are floating by. And, and as you mentioned, we're children of Jaws, the movie. That's right. right. I mean, I grew up with that. Yeah. And my parents wouldn't let me see it at first, and I had to beg and plead. But, uh, you know, as a nature boy, that movie just, I mean, it was it was the ultimate. <laughs> so, yes, I grew up with Jaws. I always see sharks out of the corner of my eye when I'm underwater. But, yeah, that was an incredible experience, and that was, in many ways, sort of my introduction 
to uh, to foraging because that because I started doing that fairly early on. And you mentioned the writer and philosopher that that accompanied you in that and other adventures. And your books are filled with with this cast of characters that do this with you and around you. And I wonder if there's a sense from those who are serious about foraging that they have to keep their passion somewhat secret or at least not advertise it too much. Is there a, a secret solidarity among this subculture? So there are definitely subcultures where secrecy is paramount. So you see that among steelhead fishermen. And of course, among mushroom hunters, that's probably the most famous case, uh, especially the commercial mushroom hunters. But very, very few people know a commercial mushroom hunter. That, that's somebody who's doing it for profit. But even the recreational mushroom hunters are incredibly secretive. In fact, my experience is that the recreational hunters are more secretive than the commercial guys. The commercial guys, they have patches up and down the West Coast, hundreds of patches. They forget more patches than they remember. But the recreationals, they might just have a few decent patches that they visit year after year. And so they can be very secretive about the locations of those places. And, you know, the old joke is, okay, I, I'll take you to it, but, you know, I'm going to blindfold you first. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I tend to share a lot of patches with people. For me, a big part of it is getting other people out into the woods with me to have that experience. You know, we're so disconnected from nature these days. And I feel like it's it's part of my role to just try and try and change that, to get people out there reconnecting with their landscape. And speaking of being out there, given all the different kinds of foraging you engage in for for mushrooms, catching squid, picking dandelions, <laughs> diving and spearing lingcod. Where do you find yourself the happiest? Where's your the happiest foraging moments for you? I really love being in the woods. I love mushroom hunting. That really encapsulates all of it because it's the treasure hunt writ large, of course. But mushrooms are also super tasty. So you're spending a day out in the woods, tromping around, bushwhacking, getting some exercise, getting dirty, you know, mucking around. And then you come home and you're spending time in the kitchen with the warm hearth nearby and hopefully your friends and a bottle of red wine, you know, cracked open and you're, you're making a recipe together. And there's just something, you know, between field and kitchen that's so satisfying. You know, mushroom hunting and then cooking up the catch at the end of the day is, is really the ultimate for me. Yeah, my wife and I went mushroom foraging a couple of times, and this was maybe four years ago. She still has dried morel mushrooms still in the pantry, and I say, can we use it? And she says, no. So I think it's it's a remainder trophy of the experience rather than the thing itself. Sure, and it's yeah. also like fine wines because you can age them, and they just get better with age. They just get earthier and more pungent. So, you know, I actually – I'll put my mushrooms in mason jars and Ziploc bags and, and save them, and I'll label them so I know where they came from. And I'll remember when I go down into my basement, I keep them in the same sort of, you know, climate controlled place that you'd keep a nice wine collection. I go down and I and I sort of paw through my different bags of mushrooms and each one evokes memories of that hunt and those times. And, you know, I have them dating back several years, you know, maybe even 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they do they do get better with age. And, you know, I always assume that all foraging is good foraging in the sense that, that one is connected to nature and gaining a, a profound understanding to your point of the source of our food. But is there such a thing as bad foraging or irresponsible foraging? When does it, when is it the turn? When is it too, too good a thing, so to speak? Well, I think we all have to practice ethical foraging. We have to think about what we're doing out there. You know, we are taking food. And in some cases, living things. And, you know, it depends on your definition of foraging, but I would include shellfish, for instance, a living thing. And we have to be mindful of that. We are killing something so that we can live. And so we don't want to over-harvest. I mean, that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. We also want to step lightly. You know, obviously, you want to practice leave no trace. You know, I I get asked quite a bit about the over-harvest of mushrooms. That seems to be a topic that folks are interested in right now. And, you know, we have so many other examples of wild foods that we've over-harvested. I mean, just take a look at our salmon populations. And so with mushrooms, it's interesting. Right now, we don't have a lot of evidence of over-harvest. It seems that the mushrooms can withstand the harvesting that's going on at the level that it's going on right now. Think of it as like picking cherries from a tree. Mushrooms are the fruiting body of the fungus. The fungus lives underground as these little filaments 
and then they produce the mushroom, which is the reproductive part of it. So when you're harvesting a mushroom, you're not actually taking the whole fungus. It's there, and the next year, it'll produce another mushroom, hopefully, if the conditions are right. As far as researchers can tell, we're not having a huge impact on fungal populations because of mushroom hunting. What's harming the fungal communities would be the typical things, development, you know, clear-cutting a forest, paving it over, those sort of things. Or simply just changes in tree canopy. That can have a big effect. Mm -hmm. Um, As the trees get older or they change, you know, that can affect the fungal community. So, you know, what I tell people is be mindful, take what you need. Don't take a lot more than what you need. I mean, I always have extra mushrooms on hand, but I'm not overdoing it. Mm -hmm. So let's shift gears a little bit. And I want to explore what I think you've described or many people describe as the foraging goggles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Right. And can you talk a bit about the state of mind that you find yourself in when foraging? And let me expand a little bit. A friend at work once took me on that morel hunting trip and expedition. And after a while, I found myself in this unique state of mind where my mind and my senses went through some kind of a shift. I had to shift from my usual default mode, right, of taking in the world around me and then edit out certain sensory information that was unimportant to the task at hand. Do you enter that zone? What is that zone like? Is it a stream of consciousness? What, what's that psychological state you're in when foraging? That's right. It, it, you are in the zone, and, and it feels good when you're in the zone. Right. You have to leave behind all that clutter that you know we accrue from just our daily lives and civilization and get out into nature and sort of peel those layers away. But some of it is just seeing and using all our faculties. And so when I'm in the zone, I'm walking through the woods and all of a sudden it's like the mushrooms are just jumping out saying boo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can you can see them and it's amazing. And and you in your mind you get that image where you see that mushroom. You know, depending on what the species is, you see that profile. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you can go back and forth over the same ground and you will always see more mushrooms, especially when it comes to a mushroom like morels. You know, there are other mushrooms like chanterelles that really stand out because of their color. But even with chanterelles, they hide under the salal and the evergreen uh, huckleberry and, you know, all, all the, you know, shrubbery out there in the forest. Mm-hmm. And you're going to miss them. Yeah. And you can go over the same ground and there they'll be back and forth. Just keep going over it and you'll find more and more. But when you get into the zone, you just see things. And it's not just the mushrooms. You see other things. You start to put together the puzzle that is the natural world. Mm. You know, I refer to it as nature's Rubik's Cube. When it comes to hunting mushrooms, there's all sorts of variables that come together. And a good mushroom hunter is able to sort of put them together like a Rubik's Cube and, and sort of figure it out. So there's slope aspect and there's tree canopy and there's soil type and there's the humidity and microclimates and moisture and all these different facets go into it. And when you can put them together and figure it out, that's when you start finding the mushrooms. Mm. And then once you're finding the mushrooms, maybe you're dialing into other things as well. So perhaps you might see a certain, you know, hole that's been bored by a type of woodpecker. And maybe you'll notice that in another patch of woods and connect it back with that same species of mushroom. These little dramas that are taking place Mm -hmm. and start to make the connections. And then, you know, you can do your research. So for instance, matsutake mushrooms, you know, wonderful delicacy, really beloved in Japan. They're gaining a lot of adherence here, you know, in the U.S. as well. Really fun to hunt. We have a lot of matsutake in our woods. Matsutake also happens to grow with a certain saprophyte. This is plant that doesn't use chlorophyll. It lives off of the matsutake mushroom. Mm. And if you spot it, then you know that there's matsutake there and you can come back later. And I think it's interesting to me because when I was in the zone, I also had a different feeling as well. Do you ever find yourself so focused on that task at hand that your attention 
zeroes in on all the micro details of a place, and in a way you fall in the zone and fail to realize the grandeur or the majesty of the natural setting you're in. You're so in a micro moment that the macro level that you find yourself in doesn't occur to you. It sounds like in your case you don't because you're talking about all the other details that are that are part of the experience, not just the hunt for the object itself. Well, and what you're describing is also how you get lost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because if you're not paying attention, you're looking down, you're just really focused on the mushrooms, and then all of a sudden you look up, where am I? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of light penetrating through the canopy. You can't really tell exactly you know, where the sun is. And all of a sudden you lose your direction and you think, hmm, which direction was the car again? <laughs> <laughs> and that that is a harrowing moment. And I think most people who spend time off trail in the woods hunting mushrooms and other wild foods will have that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not pleasant. It's it's really, I mean, your heart rate suddenly increases. You really, you, you get that blurry vision. You want to just take off and run in a certain direction because you don't yeah. know what else to do. And it's it's not fun. And I, I know mushroom hunters who have spent the night in the woods. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, that's something that can happen. So, you, you know, map and compass. There's certain essentials that one needs. Yeah. This yeah. is familiar to me because four years ago when my wife and I did it with a series of friends that were out there, my wife found a series of these morels and she kept finding them and kept finding them. And it felt almost like a Pac-Man game. I kept pursuing her as she just was on her hands and knees with a knife, cutting, cutting, cutting. And, you know, 30 minutes later, I don't know where we ended up. We were just following the trail of the morels rather than, you know, being rational about where we should be. So it's it's quite a, an experience to be in that zone. And let's go a little macro, if you will, a little mm-hmm. bit. What places come immediately to your mind when I ask you to think of spectacular experiences you have had, whether in the wild or perhaps at a meal where you enjoyed the spoils, but quick, without overthinking it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Ready? Yeah, go. I'm go. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've had some wonder, wonderful moments um, in the North Cascades of, of Washington uh, hunting morels in the burn. You know, most people would think that a burned over forest is, is an unpleasant place to be. But really, it's part of our uh, ecology out here in the West, and it has its own sort of eerie beauty to it. For the listeners who don't know this, when we have these burns in the in the montane forests of the West, uh, often the following spring, there are just stupendous flushes of morel mushrooms. And so a lot of mushroom hunters really focus on these burns. And they're eerie and, you know, with these charred trees, these hulking sort of black burned over trees and, you know, the wind is whistling through and and it's dry underfoot and sometimes ash. And I mean, it, it can be almost like a moonscape, mm-hmm. but it offers, offers its own sort of strange beauty. So I've had lots of moments like that, chasing the burn, mm-hmm. as they say. You know, I love being on rivers and lakes fishing. You know, there's so many. The thing about foraging is it just gets you into some beautiful territory. You know, I've foraged all over the country. Been up in the Yukon hunting mushrooms. I've been in Alaska fishing for salmon. I've been deep in boggy Pacific Northwest woods. Uh, when I was researching the mushroom hunters, I went to China. Uh, China is, as a country, just in love with wild mushrooms and, and has been for thousands of years. Uh, they have a really robust mushroom trade in China. And I started in Chengdu in Sichuan province, and we made our way up to uh, the Tibetan plateau. And along the way, we visited sort of in the foothills, a city called Kanding. First of all, they had a Sunday market there, which would just put to shame any sort of Sunday farmer's market that you can find anywhere in this country. And just the mushroom part of it would put it to shame. I mean, it was... I don't know. They had there were probably thirty wild mushroom stalls. They stretched as long as a football field, just one after another. And they had different species, all sorts of different species. Species that I'm familiar with that sometimes I don't bother with. And in fact, when I got back to the US, some of the species I'd seen in China, I thought, I'm gonna I see these in my woods. I'm gonna go pick them. Well, they're delicious. So they eat all kinds of different mushrooms. And I was with a group of other mushroom hunters. We were in Jeeps and we would jump out every now and then at a likely patch of woods and just go foraging. 
we didn't really know where we were. We had destinations, towns that we were visiting, but we would just jump into the woods and go find mushrooms that basically kind of looked like varieties that we were familiar with in this country, um, but maybe slightly different, like the coloration might be. Like one species I remember was we found uh, what mushroom hunters will sometimes call chicken of the woods, latiparous, also called sulfur shelf. It's a type of mushroom that grows off of trees and it can look like frisbees actually and and here in the US they're typically bright orange on top and and bright yellow underneath so these sort of citrus colors well in China it was more of a sort of a pinkish on top and white underneath but it was clearly in the same genus it was a latiparous and um, you know a lot of them are edible and so we collected it finally made it to a town that evening and uh, went to a restaurant for dinner and we brought it with us and we brought it in and asked the chef to cook it up. And he looked at it and got very excited and a lot of, you know, hand gestures as we tried to communicate. And, uh, and he was, he was excited to cook it for us, but first we had to sign a little agreement <laughs> that, you know, if uh, any of us came to a bad end from eating this mushroom, that he wasn't responsible. Mm. He, he literally just brought out a piece of blank paper and quickly drew up a document and we signed it. But he cooked it up and it was delicious. And uh, and we all lived to tell the tale. Did he not know if it was poisonous or not? He just wanted to cover his bases or did he know something <laughs> you didn't? You know, he he seemed to be familiar with it, but he was still, you know... It was uh, CYA for hmm. sure. And then there were a lot of other species that we found that they probably don't have Latin names yet, but they're very similar to species that we have here. Different types of beletes and chanterelles and things like that. Uh, and we would just take them into the restaurants wherever we went. And I happen to be a huge fan of Sichuan cooking. I mm-hmm. do a lot of Sichuan cooking at home. And it was just wonderful to be in this place where they have a long mushroom history and finding these, you know, wonderful species, many of which are unnamed, and just bringing them to these restaurants and having them cook them up for us. Uh, we had some memorable meals. Mm-hmm. Speaking of being everywhere, I actually heard that you went off the grid for a while somewhere in Oregon. And can you share that experience with us? What And what motivated you to untether yourself from the day-to-day? Was the experience you had what you expected it to be when you did that? So to back up a little bit, mm-hmm. it was around... Toward the end of 2003, my wife is a poet, and she's an instructor in English, a college instructor. And she received a fellowship that involved being a caretaker of a homestead off the grid in southwestern Oregon in the Rogue River Canyon. I had been working at Amazon.com as a book editor for a number of years. The time just felt, felt right. I quit my job early 2004. Mm-hmm. And we sort of parachuted into the woods, you know, left our home in the city. We had a three-year-old, brought the boy with us and and set up home two hours from the nearest town, which was Grants Pass, Oregon, mm-hmm. two hours by rough logging road. We were out there. No electricity, no phone. We did have a satellite phone for emergency, cumbersome affair that, you know, you had to triangulate some satellites mm-hmm. and thing was enormous and a pain to use. but. You know, basically that was for calling the helicopter (laughs) if there was a real problem. Otherwise, that was it. It was glorious. Mm. That was really where writing about foraging for me started. Before that, most of my personal writing was fiction. While I was living off the grid, we did a lot of foraging. And uh, I started writing essays about it. I realized that I could take the devices of fiction and work that into these personal essays about hunting for wild foods and learning how to forage and living off the grid. And, uh, and so that's where fat of the land began actually. Mm. Yeah. And I guess is, do you think that experience cemented your direction as a forager even more, or were you already doing that even before that, that experience? Well, so I had been foraging before that, mm-hmm. um, but um, spending a year off the grid changes you. Um, you know, the rhythms of your life just completely altered. We, we kept a garden that was the size of a hockey rink 
So we were growing our own food. We were catching salmon and steelhead in the river. And then, of course, there were wild foods all around us. We were just surrounded by public land. So I could walk out the cabin and just go in any direction, hunt mushrooms and pick berries and miner's lettuce and what have you, wild greens of all kinds. Mm. And so we just started incorporating all these different foods into our meals. And it was the foraging that really turned me on to cooking mm. because I didn't grow up with a lot of cooking chops, that's for sure. I mean, my dad was sort of the grill master and my mom sort of grudgingly cooked, but I was of the TV dinner generation. Mm. You know, I ate a lot of TV dinners as a kid. And so I didn't really have those chops but with the foraging, I was finding these extraordinary foods and I was researching them and learning that they had incredible nutritional value. And, you know, in some cases, they have flavors that we're just not used to, especially as Americans, because we have such, you know, such a sweet tooth from eating so many Big Macs and high fructose corn syrup and all that. And so, especially with the wild greens, they tend to be a little more on the bitter side of the spectrum. And so you have to really learn how to cook them appropriately. Mm -hmm. The other thing is just some of these foods, they're just so expensive. You see them in the market. They really, they cost a pretty penny. And, you know, you have these precious foods and you want to honor them. And so the cooking kind of went in tandem with the foraging for mm -hmm. me. And uh, we were also putting up a ton of food. We were dehydrating foods and canning them. And we thought we were going to overwinter, actually. That was the plan. We had a herd of deer down in the meadow. And so there was an old rifle and I planned to take a deer and, and we were going to live off that. Because once once you got significant snowfall, that was it. You couldn't leave except hiking 15 miles out on the Rogue River Trail. Mm -hmm. There was no way to drive out uh, because the pass, they don't plow it. It'd be, you know, 10 feet of snow up there. The idea was that we were going to overwinter at the cabin. And so I, I needed to take a deer and we were drying all sorts of food and canning and doing all that. Well, my wife... Uh, made a trip into town, visited the doctor, came back and said, guess what? We're having a baby. <laughs> so, yes. So we went in with one and came out with two. Uh, so we, we ended up leaving in December uh, so my daughter could be born. But, you know, it wasn't quite a full year, but really just emblazoned on me. Uh, and that place, the Rogue River Canyon, I mean, it is, it is now part of my cell structure. Yeah. I go back there every year, pretty much. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. And, and let me now shift and go from off the grid to the grid, because what I noticed is that some of the narratives in your writing doesn't only happen in, in nature, they happen in urban areas as well. Could you maybe share some examples of how city dwellers might still get the, their foraging rocks off, so to speak? Sure. You know, one of my favorite forms of urban foraging happens every other year in odd-numbered years, and that's when the pink salmon are running. So pink salmon have a two-year life cycle, and there are even-year runs of pink salmon and odd-year runs. Down here in Puget Sound, we have odd-year fish. So 2017, this is an odd year. We're going to have pinks returning this year to Puget Sound. And in the last, I don't know, 15 to 20 years, this is the one species in our region that's been trending up, as opposed to Chinook and Coho, which are down, and Steelhead, of course, which are in the tank. Pinks are actually on the, on the rise. They're doing better uh, for reasons that are not entirely explainable. I've talked to biologists about this. But anyway, when the pinks are running, it's really a glimpse of what the salmon culture in Seattle must have been like you know, 50 years ago or more, because everybody, you know, comes out of the woodwork with just their cheapo rods and lures and the beaches are lined with anglers and it is, it's just tons of fun. And the pinks, you can see them, they're jumping and splashing as they follow the shorelines and they're good biters. Mm. They're great fish for actually getting, you know, a young kid into salmon fishing because you can just throw a lure right from the beach and catch a pink. It's how my son, when he was about seven years old, caught his first salmon. You know, he threw a little buzz bomb lure 30 feet into the chop of Puget Sound and fish on. So I actually go with a bunch of buddies. We fly fish for them and we fly fish in the Duwamish Waterway, as it's known. They don't call it the river, they call it a waterway because it is Seattle's industrial river. Mm -hmm. And there we are 
you know, surrounded. Well, there's a Boeing factory. There's trash compactors working on a diet of, you know, wrecked cars. There's cranes. Of course, Seattle's filled with cranes these days. And there's cranes everywhere swiveling this way and that and tugboats and barges. And uh, we paddle these little pontoon boats and one-man rafts and things like that just out into the middle of the waterway amidst all this sort of hustle and bustle of the working, you know, industrial shoreline and fish for pink salmon. It's a hoot. Yeah, and they're safe, I suppose. <laughs> well, you know, now granted, this is a super fun site, uh-huh. the New Amish, but, <laughs> but, you know, the fish are coming in from the North Pacific. So, you know, I think they're fair game. They're in the Duwamish for about as long as it takes for the tide to change. Mm, Yeah. So I think they pass through the contamination zone relatively intact. Yeah. And I'd say we're lucky because we're in Seattle because when we say, hey, what does city foraging look like? We are right abutted by water and mountain, et cetera. But one of the episodes you described in Fat of the Land that really stuck with me because I, I never thought of this was Foraging for dandelions. Ah, uh, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what that's about you know, and, and that particular incident you had? You know, frankly, I'd be a little careful about foraging for dandelions in the city because, you know, they have long tap roots. They're reaching down into the ground and who knows what they're pulling up, you know, what sort of contaminants. But yes, I, I have, and I did write a chapter about, you know, foraging for dandelions right in the city. And of course, around this time of year, March, you start seeing them. They can be pretty robust and they love abandoned lots and really anywhere. And they're a weed. And like a lot of the weeds, they have incredible nutritional value. All over the world, people eat dandelions. More recently in this country, we've started seeing them, you know, in farmer's markets and places like that. And we're rediscovering them. But these are dandelions are an important part of most people's nutrition around the world. And they're everywhere. But like I said, I, I would be careful about where where you forage them. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, I do grab them from my backyard, but I make sure to take them sort of out in the middle of the yard as opposed to, you know, close to the house where who knows how many years of lead paint might have been scraped off, you know, (laughs) a hundred-year-old Seattle house and into the ground. Mm -hmm. So those are the sort of things that I I think about. You know, in terms of foraging, you know, with contaminants, because there just haven't been a lot of studies and there aren't really you know, hard rules about this, but some general rules would be give a wide berth to superhighways, railroad tracks, and even telephone poles because mm-hmm. of the creosote. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, the, the incident you're describing sounds like it, in a way, maybe it's breaking your, your rules or your guidelines. You mentioned uh, two transients coming up to you while you're minding your own business, picking dandelions in the field, and they're looking at you, you know, cockeyed with suspicion, wondering what's in your bag. That's right. That's quite an image what, that you had to. Uh, yeah. And, and then when I told him that you could make dandelion wine and that it really packs a wallop, that was sort of, you know, all of a sudden, hmm, you could see yeah. the light bulb going off. <laughs> they looked around to see how many dandelions they could pick. And then I, I think you said it dawned upon them that it would take a whole day in order to, to get enough to get dandelion wine. Yeah. It's some work. Mm-hmm. For dandelion wine, you're separating the petals from the rest of the plant. So think about that for a second. Yeah. It's a little bit of work. So I'm curious about, I guess, we've skirted about it a little bit about some maybe political or, or more um, social issues associated with what you do. Have you been following the the so-called slow food movement and the, the associated cultural movements that are gathering steam lately that seem related to it? For instance, mindfulness, digital detox. Do you consider what you do part of that movement or tradition? Is there a, a political angle to your actions that you think about? And if so, how vocal do you tend to be about it or... Is it not a primary impetus in what you do? Oh, I think I'm definitely part of it. I'm a fan of slow food. I've spoken at some slow food conferences. Uh, I like what they do. You know, the idea is that we need to start thinking about our food differently. Uh, We have this sort of industrial food chain, which isn't very healthy for us. All this packaged processed food isn't really, you know, doing us a good turn. And so foraging is is part of that slow food movement, the idea that, hey, it takes – first of all, it takes a little bit of money to to buy good quality ingredients. People in other countries you know, spend a larger percentage of their income on food and they probably spend more time as well preparing it. So that's where the notion of slow food comes from. But you know, the whole idea of slowing down and preparing a meal with your loved ones – 
that's also part of it. Mm-hmm. And foraging's definitely right there in the slow food movement. Well, slow food is is part of a sort of burgeoning movement in general, which is a kind of back to the old ways. Put down your cell phone for a few minutes, maybe take up some knitting or mm-hmm. you know, go work on your vegetable garden, do a little canning, these kind of things, fermenting, pickling. There's all sorts of stuff going on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are learning these old trades, which are maybe semi-forgotten. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. It doesn't only have the political response against over-industrialization of our food, but to your point, to to go foraging, to take time to think about the essence of what you're doing and where you got the ingredients and how they combine. And you mentioned earlier how there's a certain taste profile that we're not familiar with because of what has happened to us through commercialization and in capitalist society, if you will, over prioritizing certain types of foods or substances for us over others. So we're missing a whole spectrum of experience, not just tastes, but how we interact with our natural world as a result. And it's it's impoverishing in a way how how we interact with the places around us. That's right. When I lead field trips or do workshops, take people out into the woods, I try and remind them of some of these issues without getting too much on my soapbox. I don't like to be too polemical because I think that takes the fun out of it. Mm-hmm. And at the heart is fun. I think it's fun to be in the woods finding these things. And, um, you know, it's it's amazing when I take folks out for a class or a workshop, seeing them have that first experience where they've never gone foraging before. Maybe they really have never even gone for a hike in the woods. And seeing how their faces just light up with this experience. And they get it. You know, especially kids. Take kids out in the woods mm-hmm. who really haven't spent a lot of time in the woods. And, I mean, it's just it's an endless playground. To see that happen, it's a lot of fun for me. And could um, you tell us a little bit about, yeah, you're not only an author. You do these talks. You do these workshops and events. And I looked at your website, and there's a whole series of them in the Seattle area coming up. Mm-hmm. About, I don't know, half a dozen at least. Could you talk a little bit about what's coming up and, and what those are like and how sure. people can, can find those? Well, I do a bunch of different wild foods and, and foraging classes. Uh, I take people into the woods on just simple ID walks. We even go to Seward Park in Seattle, right in the city, uh, do a two-hour walk and identify dozens of wild foods right in the forest there. We go to, you know, further out into the foothills of the Cascades uh, near Issaquah, Tiger Mountain. That's a longer three-mile hike. takes about three hours. We stop and, you know, check things out as we go and talk about identification and how to harvest and process and cook. And we talk about the ethics of it and the philosophy behind it. And then one of my favorites is our shellfish class. That's a blast. I do that usually over at Dosey Wallop State Park on Hood Canal. We pick oysters and we dig clams and then we whomp it all up on cook stoves, uh, camp stoves right on the beach. Shellfish in particular, you could make a gourmet meal with just a mess of clams in no time at all with a few good ingredients. You know, the secret ingredient is in the clam itself. It's what they call the liquor. The clam has its environment in Mm -hmm. the shell. Mm -hmm. It's that watery environment that it carries with it. And uh, and that's the secret ingredient. So when you steam it open, mm. it releases that liquor, mm. and uh, and that marries with the other ingredients that that you throw into the pot. And we'll do a Thai red curry clam dish, or a Chinese black bean clam dish, or you know roast oysters. We'll barbecue them over the fire. Uh, we eat a lot of raw oysters. Get a lot of people who've never had a raw oyster. And you know when you think about it, the oyster's still alive. That's not really part of the Western culinary mm-hmm. canon to eat, yeah. you know, foods that are still alive. And it makes people think about it. There's some philosophical issues there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a little uncomfortable, but, uh, but yeah. Um, it's definitely one of my strongest memories. I grew up in Mexico and when we would go to the beach, we would get uh, clams or, or some kind of shellfish and they would serve it to us. And I would grab the, the lemon or the lime mm-hmm. and squeeze it. 
over it raw, mm-hmm. and you would see them moving and responding to the right. citrus on it. And it just strikes me. It's, it's an extremely vivid memory in my mind. Of course, I ate them. It wasn't horrifying as much as, as you say, very eye-opening and, and grounding into what it is exactly that I was doing with nature as a result. And it makes you think about it. Mm-hmm. And that's part of slow food. Yeah. Stop and think about it. Stop and think about where your food is coming from, what you have to do to get it, Because going to the supermarket and finding a colorful package, well, that's nothing. But going out and foraging, you have a new respect for our ancestors because I'll tell you, for instance, I was talking about the pink salmon before. When the the salmon are running and we're catching a lot of them, it's just, you know, you go catch them, then you bring them home, you got to clean them, fillet them, you brine them overnight, air dry them, smoke them. I mean, it's a process. So you could just imagine a woolly mammoth or something like that. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. So your, your previous two books, Fat of the Land, Adventures of a 21st Century Forager and The Mushroom Hunters on the Trail of Underground America. But there's a new one coming out and it's focusing on salmon specifically. Is that right? It's coming out in May, if I read correctly. Tell us a little bit about why, why did you veer to that particular interest? Yeah, I, I think of it as sort of the end of this trio of, of books that I've been working on. You know, the first one, Fat of the Land, was sort of general collection of personal essays about wild foods and foraging. The Mushroom Hunters, more specifically about mushrooms and that whole culture of, uh, including the commercial culture, which I find fascinating. And then the Salmon book seemed kind of like a logical lateral move from mushrooms. The difference is, is that salmon are a known quantity. The mushroom world is largely unknown to most people. And that whole economy is very hidden. It operates, you know, almost in a clandestine fashion in the woods with the pickers and the buyers and sort of skulking around undercover in the woods. And very few people even realize it exists. So if they go to a fancy restaurant and have a dish with wild mushrooms, most people don't really stop and think, hmm, where did those mushrooms come from? Well, somebody had to pick them. But with salmon, it's different. It's an iconic species in our region, Pacific Northwest. It's a keystone species. The old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest literally grew on the backs of decaying salmon. They brought nutrients from the ocean inland. And so life could thrive even in a harsh desert environment, you know, in the inland Northwest. And for millennia, entire cultures were organized around these fish. I get into all this in the book. And still to this day, obviously, they're an incredibly important resource. They're just a totemic species uh, with all these associations. You know, for instance, in a couple of months, Copper River salmon are going to start coming down from Alaska, the sort of first major salmon run in Alaska, and they'll start arriving into SeaTac with all sorts of fanfare, and they'll, you know, appear at Pike Place Market, you know, the day after they were caught, and they'll be just beautifully silver and gleaming and stacked up on beds of ice like treasure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the tourists will flock to the market to buy these fish, and they'll pay outrageous prices. I mean, I think, you know, they were going for $60 a pound, the kings, the last time I was at the market. You know, that was for a filleted fish, and then you know, a whole fish, it was $40 a pound or something like that. You know, so they're an iconic species that have all sorts of associations from food to the environment, to commerce, to history in terms of Native Americans that were harvesting them. So what are we going to do? We have these fish that mean so much to so many people and they're on the ropes. And there's so many issues around them from salmon farms to hatcheries to the degradation of both the oceans and their river habitat. And nobody wants to lose the salmon, but it's kind of a, a quandary because their lives, in a way, are tied to our own. Anything that we do that's helpful for salmon will likely be helpful for us in the long run. Mm. And yet we're having trouble coming together 
and figuring that out. I mean, this is a problem for society. I've even heard of uh, folks who build fish cannons to allow, there's human construction going on, and in order to keep the salmon run going on, they construct these tubes that basically have some kind of like pressurized system that allow the fish to go into the tubes and then get shot through the cannon to go up. So at least there's some undertaking to preserve it, but you're right, it just seems to erode over time as more industrialization and, right. and building occurs. Well, those fish cannons they've been talking about with regard to Grand Coulee Dam. Mm. You know, so Grand Coulee Dam goes online roughly 1941, something like that. You know, it's the dam that won World War II. You know, right. It powered the steel industry and all of that. But, you know, it also blocked 1,200 miles of beautiful salmon habitat upstream with no fish passage. And so, yeah, I mean, the industrialization of this region has certainly brought a lot of wealth and comfort, but it hasn't been great for the salmon. The question is, you know, can we reach some sort of balance in which we can have both? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll look forward to it. It's uh, Upstream, Searching for Wild Salmon from River to Table, out May 2017. I've got the two books here on the desk. Now I've got a third one coming up on my list. So tell folks, where could we go online in order to learn more about you, the culture around foraging, and about your adventures in general? Where should people go online in order to, to find out more about all this? Sure. Well, if people are interested in taking one of my classes or checking out my books, they can certainly go to my website, langdoncook.com. Uh, I also have a, a blog through Blogspot, which is if you Google fat of the land, you'll find that. But there's nothing better than actually going into the woods if you want to learn with somebody somebody who you trust and who knows a thing or two. You know, so a trusted expert, take a class, go with a, a friend who, who knows what they're doing. There's nothing like being out there and seeing these species firsthand, seeing them in their habitat, being able to hold them in your hand and turn them over and look at them from different angles and really learning them that way. You know, with some of the mushrooms, you can even do that by going to the market and seeing them in the bins and just looking at, you know, chanterelles or lobster mushrooms or black trumpets or whatever it may be. But it's a certainly different experience than, say, seeing them in a book, in a picture. Mm -hmm. I think there would be no more perfect companion than Langdon Cook to take you out into the wild and find all this. I will add all the links to your workshops, your books, and I'll talk to you after this and see what would be a, a good resources online, and I'll add it to the article that accompanies this podcast. So, Langdon, thank you so much for spending some time with me. This is authentically and genuinely fascinating for me because I did this uh, morel foraging a few years ago, and I remember being in the zone, and I've always wanted to talk about it with with you in particular. So well, it feels you. good, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Eric. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. You will find a companion article for this episode where you can find out more about Langdon along with links to additional information about his foraging classes, where he will be appearing next, and about his books. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device, be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, just take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place. Thank you.